Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, another busy week in the National Football League, and we have a lot of things to get to. First, before I get to Miles Simmons, my buddy from NBC Sports and my partner on the Peter King Podcast presented by Salesforce, let's run over what we've got today. First, our guest, the very big game on Thursday night, Tyler Lockett, the wide receiver of the Seattle Seahawks. I had him on this week because I really wanted to talk about something that doesn't get talked about very much, but which I think is a really cool program, and that's the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award uh, that is just doesn't get the kind of attention that I think it should. So we're going to talk to Tyler Lockett about that in mid-podcast. Our topics this week, number one, the Patriots save their season. But is it a bit of a mirage? Number two, Kyler Murray. Is he gone till next November? And is there any way that the Arizona Cardinals can save their coach's job now when they are in the midst of an absolute freefall? Number three, breaking news, sort of, although by the time you hear this, it won't be breaking news. Cole Beasley has returned to the Buffalo Bills I believe that's because of the very, very, very sporadic play of Isaiah McKenzie and the fact that they need a shot in the arm with this offense. Maybe Cole Beasley, who two years ago was my all-pro slot receiver, can provide that. Then, San Francisco at Seattle Thursday night. This is what's called a must-win for the men of Pete Carroll. Then, after... Watching Tua Tagovailoa in the state of California twice, I believe the Miami Dolphins are going to petition the National Football League to never play in the confines of the Golden State again in the history of Tua Tagovailoa. Miles was on the scene, and he will give us some insight about that game. I'm going to ask Miles to dispute my power rankings and because I did it my top five in the column this week, and I'm going to ask him to dispute my MVP top five, and I had a change at the top this week. Then, has there ever been a winless team in division play that's made the playoffs? Well, the New York Giants right now with four games to go are a playoff team, and they're 0-3-1 in the division with two road games left in the division. So 
look, I don't think any of us think the Giants are going to make the playoffs. But anyway, we'll discuss that. We're going to discuss Jacksonville and Carolina, two teams that here we are in the middle of December and they're both still in it, bizarrely. And speaking of bizarre teams still in contention, Miles and I are going to go back and forth on the Detroit Lions. I just think they're totally, totally fascinating. And now that they've got Jamison Williams back, why can't they make the playoffs? Anyway, those are all our topics for the week. Let's dive into a few of them. Miles, welcome. You watched the Monday night game. I was asleep by halftime. I'm just not a great Monday night watcher because of my Sunday schedule. But can the Patriots, even if they do somehow wedge their way into the playoffs, can the Patriots make any noise this year? What did you judge from last night's effort by New England? Well, I think New England is the kind of team that will beat up on bad teams, and it's sort of like they were last year. But if they're playing teams that have clearly more talent than they have or have a more experienced defensive coordinator with a lot of good pieces on that on that you know field for them, then they're going to struggle. And they didn't necessarily struggle as much as they could have last night because the Arizona Cardinals are just not a very good football team. And that was even with Kyler Murray being in there. I, I just, I felt like the Patriots could go down to Arizona and play a good football game and win. And they did that. Now it, it was made, uh, let's call it easier for them. Once Kyler Murray went out on, you know, one of the first plays from scrimmage from Arizona, which is just one of the most unfortunate things you can have happen in a game um, with, with your quarterback. But at the same time, I think it really became more separation from that defense that you have with the Patriots in the second half where they're playing really, really well. They're getting to the quarterback in Colt McCoy. They're getting turnovers. You know, you, you force one on DeAndre Hopkins that turns into a touchdown. It, it, it was just all of these things that snowballed and ended in the result that I thought we were going to get. You know, I find this interesting. The New England Patriots, including their playoff loss last year, since Tom Brady walked off campus, are now 24 and 23. I thought this was a really big game for New England because Robert Kraft, from everything I heard, have heard, um, is not in this to rebuild slowly. Uh, yeah. He uh, believes that this team should be better than it is right now, that better than it's played. And look, the Patriots actually are in decent position as we sit here right now because they have swept the New York Jets. And it's pretty hard to imagine as you look at the remaining schedules the way the Jets' offense has been playing, which is totally from hunger, they're going to be in every game because of their defense. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to imagine right now both of those teams making the playoffs in the AFC because, you know, Baltimore and Cincinnati and Miami and Buffalo and all that. So I, I don't think both of those teams are going to make the playoffs. And right now... I mean, look, you'd have to think that the Patriots have a little bit of an edge over the Jets. But again, the Patriots are so inconsistent, Miles. 
I'll ask you the question this way. The Patriots play the Jets this weekend on a neutral field in Hartford. Who wins that game and who's the better team right now? I don't know. I, I, I would have to give it. I mean, the bold Patriots, answer, Miles. I know, I, yeah, thank you. I know. Well, okay. So I, I think that the Jets defense would have an advantage over the Patriots offense. But I also think that New England's defense would have a pretty big advantage over the Jets offense. So it would be a defensive battle and who can create more turnovers. And I, I think that the Jets might be able to do that against Mac Jones because that offensive scheme is so bad and is just, as Vance Joseph said, kind of a bunch of screens. And then what did they do but go and run a bunch of screens last night, which I don't know if Matt Patricia was trolling us all or what, but I guess it kind of worked. So, I, yeah, I, mm, I, when your quarterback is saying F off and F this and F that, you know, and we all see it on the broadcast. Like that makes me feel like I have less faith in whatever offense is going on there. So I, that's give me the jets, I guess right now, but yeah, that's a good question. I I, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I'll say this. I mean, I think that the Patriots should have an advantage over the Las Vegas Raiders when they play them this week. So, and I don't know if the lions really have, excuse me, if the Jets really have an advantage over the Lions based on the way the Lions are playing as they come in this week and they play the Jets. So, yeah, that's that that's part of it's it. A, it's, I, it's a great question because I would look at this and say, if you ask me who's better right now, I'll say yeah. the Jets are better. But the fact is you've got to score some points to be right. able to win. And the unfortunate thing for the Jets is They've had a very hard time protecting Mike White, who's shown himself to be a worthy quarterback of a contending team. He's not great, but he's better than Zach Wilson right now. And so I probably would take the Jets, even though I think they're going to have to win most of their games down the stretch 16 to 10. But, you know, again, the Patriots, I, I would disagree with you on this weekend. I think the Raiders are so in and out, but I think they're going to be able to score some points against the Patriots this weekend. I, I like I like the Raiders in that game. And, and again, look, uh, I, I think there are so many teams that you can start and you can you can ask this question, hey, who's better right now? The Jets yeah. or, or the or the Patriots? Who's better right now? The Patriots or the Raiders? It's easy to say that the Patriots are better than the Raiders, but when they actually have to play the games, are the Raiders going to be able to stop Josh Jacobs and are they going to be able to stop Devontae Adams from wrecking the game? So, I, you know, those are the kind of things I surely trust the offensive weapons of the Raiders more, but we'll see. I think that's a good game. Okay, Kyler Murray. You know... Obviously, when you're watching that, it sure looks like a torn ACL. Adam Schefter and others reporting that that is the fear inside uh, the Cardinals organization. As we tape this on Tuesday morning, uh, basically 12 hours after Kyler Murray had the awkward uh, non-contact injury, you know, there's still so many questions about Kyler Murray and whether he's going to be great long-term or whether he's going to be just a guy long-term. And 
I, I feel bad that he's not going to be able to finish this season with his team and provide more evidence either uh, affirming uh, the, that he's on his way to being a really good player or affirming that he's going to be just a guy. But, you know, Miles, I, I, I kind of feel bad for Kyler Murray because clearly he hasn't had a great offensive line. He's had some good weapons. He's not been able to make the beautiful music with uh, Hollywood Brown that the Cardinals thought he might do when they traded a one to acquire Brown from Baltimore. Tell me, where do you think this leaves Kyler Murray? Well, I think he could be pretty lost at sea. I mean, I don't know what exactly the Cardinals are going to do this offseason. Even though they announced that they had signed uh, Cliff Kingsbury and Steve Kime to extensions through 2027 at some point decently early on in the offseason. And my reaction to that was through what year now? And, you know, we don't necessarily know the kind yeah. of guarantees that coaches have and um, general managers have in their contracts, whatever. But I, I find it kind of hard to think that Cliff Kingsbury and Steve Kime have earned the opportunity to return for 2023. And, and you know, I, I just, I look at it and whether or not Kyler Murray was healthy, it just looks like the roster has not been constructed well and the players that have been on the field have not been coached to perform at a decent enough level where you feel like they're competitive. I mean, ever since they were 10 and two last year, they've sort of just been on this free fall. They were completely non-competitive in that game against the Los Angeles Rams in the postseason last year, and they have not been good yep. all season. And so now that you don't have the quarterback there and who knows when Kyler Murray is going to return, because I mean, especially with a quarterback who uses his legs like Kyler Murray does, it's not the same as Joe Burrow returning from NACL, right? Where he is just purely pocket passer and you know that, yeah, you can get by a little bit with him just being in the pocket. And I don't mean that to say that Kyler Murray can't operate from the pocket. He definitely can. But it's different when his legs are that much a part of what he does that makes him great, right? So if you have a new coach in there, what does the new coach do to kind of integrate everything so that it can be okay whenever Kyler Murray returns that's at whatever best, point in the season that happens? That's the biggest question. Yeah, You know, this is a difficult coaching job, in my opinion, because... I agree. Kyler Murray is a different kind of quarterback. You've got a different kind of roster. You know, do you bring J.J. Watt back? Um, what do you do with uh, some of the other veterans you have on your team? How about the holes you have and the holes you have are going to have financially? This is not a team that is flush with either cash um, or the willingness to spend the cash. And so... This, this is a, if they fire Cliff Kingsbury, this is a tough, tough job. And yeah. so I don't know what they're going to do, but, you know, with the, with the Arizona Cardinals being, I believe, five and, you know, look, a year and a week ago, uh, they were 10 and two in the number one seed in the NFC. Right. And I believe since then they're five and 14. And so at some point you have to say, I'm not getting what I paid for. And 
as David Tepper did when he fired Matt Rule. He's hoping that some team out there, perhaps a college team, is going to take a good chunk of the money he owes his coach off his hands. And I'm sure that Michael Bidwell would be hoping that Cliff Kingsbury gets a college job and uh, he can at least offload, you know, half or more of the money he owes Cliff Kingsbury. So we'll, we'll be watching that story. This really is a bigger story, what I'm about to say, than I believe uh, will be made of it. Um, I know the Cowboys signed T.Y. Hilton, which kind of puts them, you would think, out of the market or at least down market for Odell Beckham Jr. But I find it really, really interesting that the Buffalo Bills are bringing back Cole Beasley. Now, two years ago, Cole Beasley was one of the, I had him as the best slot receiver in the NFL. He had a disappearing act 2021 uh, they let Beasley go after the season. He had a, like a 12-play cup of coffee one week with Tampa Bay. He got to catch a ball from Tom Brady so he can tell his grandchildren that. But now, when you look at the Buffalo Bills and you look at their struggles on offense recently, um, I might make the point that some of those struggles are because the Jets are a damn good defense. I wouldn't be panicky. But I noticed this the other day, Miles, watching this game. Isaiah McKenzie has Cole Beasley's old job, you know, the slot mm -hmm. receiver job. He's only down this year for five dropped passes. I think I've seen all of them. And maybe I've seen all of them on replay six times because I'll tell you, this is a guy who's having some hands, is hands issues right now, Isaiah McKenzie. And I wrote in my column this week, the, you know, the Bills are, are have going to have to do something about this pretty soon. It actually took them less than 24 hours. Cole Beasley, as we speak, was in Buffalo uh, on Monday uh, agreeing to terms of, of a deal to go back to uh, the Buffalo Bills. So I don't know, Miles, does it smack of desperation to you or does it smack of common sense by Brandon Bean bringing Cole Beasley back? I think it's a little bit of column A, but more of column B there because it's kind of rare when you get the opportunity to bring a player into your building who knows your building and knows your quarterback and knows your offense already this late in the season. And you can actually expect him yeah. to perform. Right? So it's not necessarily that it's complete desperation, but as you enter the mid-December range of the schedule, right now there are four games left, you want to make sure that you have everything possible that you can have for your team personnel-wise. And if Cole Beasley is sitting there on the street, and it's like, you know, why don't we just bring you in, bring you back, and let's just solidify this a little bit more. Because it's not like exactly. you have the same learning curve that a T.Y. Hilton's going to have going into that Dallas Cowboys offense. I mean, just right there. Or that an Odell Beckham Jr. would have, you know, regardless of the knee injury, uh, coming into that offense as well in Buffalo, right? So I think that kind of continuity and that kind of already established chemistry with the quarterback is something that's kind of hard to get in these situations in mid-December. 
So I, I think it makes sense for them, especially because, I mean, I feel like you, Peter. I mean, every time it seems like you're watching Isaiah McKenzie, he's sometimes he's not making a play. And you have to be able to trust the guys who are on the field in the critical situations. And if Cole Beasley gives them a little more peace of mind than that, then, yeah, it makes sense to bring him in. So this is one of the rare weeks that there's a really good Thursday night game. And the reason that it's really good, it's San Francisco at Seattle. And the reason it's really good is that Seattle base for Seattle, this is a playoff game. Mm -hmm. Uh, Seattle has its second Thursday night game this year. That is going to be a huge game. It's against their arch rivals, the 49ers. And, after falling to seven and six, it looked for a long time like Seattle was going to be one of the stories of the year and they'd make the playoffs. But not only has the team fallen to earth, but Geno Smith has fallen to earth a little bit too. So I don't know. I kind of look, and we're not positive Brock Purdy's going to play. He's got ankle and rib injuries coming out of that incredible performance uh, he had Sunday in beating the 49ers. But Miles, I guess I would ask this question. You know, are the 49ers without Debo Samuel and with a beaten up quarterback good enough to go in and win a desperado game for the home team in Seattle on Thursday? I think they are because as the cliche goes, defense travels. And as long as you've got a bunch of healthy guys walking off that bus on defense in Seattle, then I think that they're going to have a good (laughs) shot. That's a good point. Yeah, right. But... At the same time, I mean, Pete Carroll and Kyle Shanahan have been going against one another since 2017, and it's not at this particular level, but I almost kind of feel like it's a Baltimore-Pittsburgh game where at a certain point, you throw out the records between these two teams. You throw out whatever they've done. It doesn't matter. And, you know, the, the last game that these two teams played was all the way back in September. They're kind of two different teams now. They've been, you know, both on mostly upward trajectories, but frankly, I did not expect the Carolina Panthers to travel all the way to Seattle and be able to beat them at home. It just, that was kind of shocking to me. And so I give Steve Wilkes and that group a lot of credit down there um, in Charlotte, but even coming off of that and coming off of what Brock Purdy's done, and, and, you know, coming off of what Geno Smith and those guys have done, I, it's hard to gauge this, but the, the, the Seahawks have as good a chance against this team as anybody because of the familiarity within the division. And that division yeah. rivalry is that strong. I totally agree with you. I kind of like Seattle in this game. Yeah. Um, and, and, I mean, if their two young tackles can, can protect um, – Geno Smith. I kind of like Seattle. Bill Parcells used to used to always say, you know, in the NFL, usually the desperate team wins. Um, so I'll go with Seattle. And by the way, Miles, my favorite sports cliche by far is when these two teams meet, you can throw the records out the window. Uh, you can throw <laughs> the stats. You can throw the history out the window. And I'll tell you why it's my favorite one. Very early in my career, in the early 80s, I worked at the Cincinnati Inquirer. And I was covering college basketball at the time. So one day, 
I had to cover the University of Cincinnati against Miami, which was a local rival, 32 miles away from downtown Cincinnati in Oxford, Ohio. You being an Ohioan, you would know that uh, Miami and Southwest Ohio, you know, is a is a you know is a bit of a rival uh, to the University of Cincinnati and to Xavier in college basketball. Anyway, I was doing a preview story on the matchup between University of Cincinnati and Miami. And Cincinnati was better, but Miami was feisty, and they had a head coach named Daryl Hedrick. And I was talking to him the day before the game. I was up in Oxford, Ohio, talking to him in his office. And he said, Peter, when Miami and Cincinnati meet, you can throw the personnel out the window. (laughs) So... I just said, I'm not going to laugh. I'm not going to do anything, but I am going to quote him as saying that. And so I did, and I thought that it was quite hilarious. I think he thought I was making fun of him. But be that as it may, when the 49ers and the Seahawks meet, Miles Simmons, you can throw the personnel right out the window. Okay. Um, Enough, you know, of the frivolous behavior on the Peter King podcast presented by Salesforce. I just want to ask you, let's assume Brock Purdy plays. What exactly are we seeing here? How amazing is it what we're seeing in Brock Purdy? It's pretty amazing. It it, it is because, look, you don't really expect seventh round rookies to come in and do much of anything. I mean, I think back to Gardner Minshew a few years ago when he was a sixth round rookie and he came in and, you know, it's not like that Jaguars team was any good. They weren't, but he was at least functioning within an offense at a level where you can say, Hey, this guy actually can be an NFL caliber quarterback in it's a good situation as any would ever be for a seventh round rookie to come in and perform when you are a, in a Kyle Shanahan system and B you've got the kind of personnel around you, whether or not they are thrown out the window uh, or not, you know, for the San Francisco 49ers, when you're talking about guys like uh, Christian McCaffrey and Brandon Ayuk, and of course, before he got hurt, Debo Samuel and George Kittle is on the field, you know. So, this is a, as good of a situation as any young quarterback could ever ask for. And I think right. he's just making the most of the moment because no matter what, you still have to go out there and you've still got to make the plays, you've still got to avoid mistakes. And by and large, he's been able to do that. You know, they had one that was on the penalty, uh, so it got called back, a, a turnover for him um, late. I think that was in the second quarter. But other than that, I mean, you just you look at him, and he's making the plays that are there. And that's all you can ask for from a quarterback who you never in a million years really would have expected to be counted on for a team that has championship aspirations. Last week when I sat down with Kyle Shanahan after – Uh, the 49ers beat the Miami Dolphins. I asked him about Brock Purdy, and he said, you know, our uh, director of college scouting, Adam Peters, and and a couple of other people he named, said, you just can't discount what this kid did in college. Hmm. So I went back and looked at it, Miles. Brock Purdy played 48 games in the Big 12 at Iowa State. Now, nobody thought he was a premier quarterback. Right. But think of this for a second. 
middle of the pack Big 12 team. Had some yeah. big wins, but you know, never been a great team. But middle of the pack Big 12 team. So what does that mean? It means you're playing in Austin, Texas before mm -hmm. 90,000. You're playing in Norman, Oklahoma. And I'm guessing, I don't know what the capacities are. You're playing in Norman, Oklahoma before 80,000. And you know what else you're doing? You're beating back the competition in Ames, Iowa on your yeah. own team. Because when you're 6-1 and you're playing pretty well, but you're not killing it, um, there's going to be people who are going to be coming for your job. And Matt Campbell, the head coach, I'm sure many times thought, can we do better than Brock Purdy? But year after year after year, starting in 2018, he started, and especially his last three years, think of it, Miles. He threw 475, 365, and 407 passes in those three years. And in those three years, he threw 65 touchdown passes. So I'm not here to say that Brock Purdy uh, is going to be the next anybody. I'm here to say he's been there. He's played football in some, you know, for a 19-year-old kid, a pretty big situation, you know, for a big 12 team. When you've played 48 games of significant college football, my opinion, at least, at least you're not afraid. Okay, and yeah. I look at Brock Purdy and, and in my eight or 10 minutes with him after the game last week, I walked away and I said, this guy really thinks he can do it. And this guy, in fact, you know, just sort of jokes about how his first start is against Tom Brady. Like, hey, that's cool. Not like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I'm going to collapse into a pool of jello. Oh no, no, Tom Brady on the other side of the field. So all I can say is for everybody who says, and I'm among them, man, it's doubtful that he could go into Philadelphia the last weekend in January and win an NFC championship game. Hey, look, we are six weeks away from anything like that even being possible. Let's let nature take its course. But I think what we've seen in the first seven and a half quarters of NFL action for Brock Purdy, he's not afraid. Miles, let's move on. We're going to go to uh, to our guest now, uh, the, the outstanding receiver of the Seattle Seahawks, Tyler Lockett. Also, uh, his team's candidate this year, uh, nominee for the Walter Payton Man of the Year. And, and as I said, one of the reasons that I really wanted to have a Walter Payton Man of the Year nominee on the podcast this week, I want this to get a little bit more attention. I think it's worthy. And I think the good deeds of NFL players, uh, it, you know, nobody watches NFL games because Tyler Lockett did X, Y, and Z off the field. But I just think once in a while we ought to say, you know, there's some pretty good guys playing in the NFL. So my conversation with Tyler Locke. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. 
You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet. Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. So happy to be joined now by Tyler Lockett of the Seahawks. And Tyler, I wanted to have you on for a couple of reasons this week. One is because I, I I used to be one of the voters for the Walter Payton Man of the Year, and I realize how important it is. And it's very rare that a guy is the nominee of his team a couple of times, which obviously now you have been. So... Tell me why this award is meaningful to players. I think it's meaningful to players when you talk about the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, just because in the NFL, they teach you about how this is a business. And, you know, so I went to business school and they talk about sole proprietorship and all that type of stuff. But it's really just about you being able to look out for yourself. And so sometimes like football isn't the same anymore when you come from high school and college to the league, because everybody wants to be able to eat. And if other people are being successful, it's almost like they're taking food away from your family's table, right? Like that's what a lot of people would talk about. That's what it was like when I came here. And so it's all about individual performance. It's all about being able to do what you can do to be able to make as much money as you can on and off the field. But when you talk about being able to be nominated for the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, it puts things into a different perspective and it, it, and it balances out the football that comes with sometimes individuality where you start talking about being able to have a chance to make a difference in people's lives. You start realizing the money is just about having a head start in life. And that you have a chance to be able to help people along the way, you can be able to make a difference, whether it's with money, whether it's with time, whether it's with listening, whether it's with giving words of encouragement and wisdom, you start realizing that the bigger picture of why you're in this position isn't about you, it's about what you can be able to do to be able to help others. And so that, that's what I mean by being able to be nominated for this award. It takes away all that selfishness that sometimes comes with football. It doesn't mean everybody's selfish, but that's just kind of the stuff that comes with the NFL. It's like, I'm a receiver, right? Well, a receiver can't be able to get stats without all the other people on his team. But when people talk about how great receivers that some people are is because they get so many opportunities and so many chances. And so as a receiver, everybody wants the ball. You know what I mean? And so when you get nominated for this award, it's like you have a chance to be able to sit back and realize that anybody would wish to be in your position. Like Gino had talked about it a little bit earlier. And so that's why I just think for me, it's very important because it makes me realize that like this is way bigger than football. And you have a chance to make a difference, whether you think it's small or whether you think it's big, it could be gigantic and enormous to another person's life. Let's, I just want to mention a couple of things that you've done that really kind of stand out to me. One is that your foundation called the Light It Up Foundation 
uh, donated more than $32,000 in clothing, shoes, food um, to the Tulsa Day Center for the homeless last year. You also have hosted 12 um, students from the Tulsa public school system um, for a job shadow program in Seattle. Um, you started a college scholarship program. Uh, you gave out $35,000 to seven students uh, for this academic or for the 21-22 academic year. And the other thing you did more recently is you combined with Bobby Wagner to basically pay off the debt for all of the public school students in the district where uh, the Seahawks play or where their practice facility is in Renton. Uh, a lot of kids had some outstanding debts uh, because they were having trouble paying for their own lunch. So you've done things like that. And and I, I, I'm, I'm curious, I know that you have talked very laudably uh, about Bobby Wagner, that he was uh, somebody who you looked up to because of his philanthropy, his giving. What'd you learn from Bobby Wagner? Uh, I think the biggest thing that I just learned from Bobby Wagner was just watching him learn how to be a pro. Uh, you know, the way he went about his business, the way that he responded through a lot of adversity and through tribulations and trying times. When you sit here and ask, you know, Bobby a question, uh, you know, he's able to give you a thoughtful answer, like not just a quick response where you're just kind of like, oh, okay, cool, and go about your way. Like he's able to kind of sit down with you and talk with you. And he's able, he's also able to listen to you if you're ever going through certain stuff, but just being able to watch how he goes about his business, watch how he's a pro, he, he became his own agent. You know what I mean? So yeah. he's he's reaching new heights every single day. And so, you know, when I say I look up to him, it's just I, I look up to the way that he moves, the way that he makes decisions, the way that he looks out for himself. He looks out for other people. You know, there there's similarities that I see, you know, within myself when I look at Bobby and being able to see him as a captain, being able to see how he helped lead a team, how he had to make um, tough decisions, how he had to be able to have those tough conversations with people. Like it wasn't just about the team, but it was also stuff about like businesses outside, like learning about um, learning about stocks, you know, learning about like investments, like different opportunities like that. You know, I learned a lot with Bobby. And like I said, man, the biggest thing that you start to see when you look at a lot of guys who came in before you, um, they care about being able to make a difference. And it doesn't matter if people know what they're doing or if people don't know as long as the people who who are being able to see a difference in their life because of what people have done, like that's all that really matters to the people that's doing the giving. You had a great line recently about giving. You said, I like to give back. I just don't like people to know that I'm giving back. <laughs> you know, you like to do it privately without uh, tooting your own horn. That kind of reminds me of the way Kurt Warner used to do it. After his career ended, we found out all these incredible things that Kurt Warner had done. And I remember I asked him about it once and he goes, you know, really, I didn't do it for people to say, hey, look at me. And I know this is probably a little bit awkward for you to talk about yourself in this way. But I also think 
it's important for people to know that football players, an awful lot of football players, do an awful lot of good things off the field. Yeah, I think there's a balance, you know, in between because the hard part is, you know, like even being nominated for this award, you're talking about some of the stuff that you did or like how when I was up there at the podium, I was talking about, you know, what I had the opportunity to be able to do with Bobby. And it just kind of makes you feel like you're telling everybody this stuff to get a pat on your back. And so that's why I said it just, it feels kind of weird when you're talking about some of the stuff that you do, because like you said, it's not like you do it for a hand clap or it's not like you do it for an award. You do it because that's something that you really believe in. And so that's why it's it's just kind of hard, like you said, at the end of the day. But I think there is a balance because people do need to be able to grow up seeing what it's like for athletes to be able to give back, especially in our position, because most people think all we do is camps and they don't understand that we we give a lot of money back we give a lot of time back we give a lot of like commitment back we do as much as we possibly can to where it doesn't drive us crazy or you know to where we lose everything that we've been blessed to have but we do as much as we can just to be able to make a difference and like i said as long as the kids know as long as the people know as long as like people within the communities that that um are a part of the giving that we're doing as long as they know then, you know, that's ultimately all that really matters. I've got two quick football questions for you. The first is, you know, I don't know what's going to happen after 18 weeks, after 17 games this season, but I find it pretty amazing from the outside, anyway, looking in, that here you are, you've got a month left in your regular season, in your football season, and here you are, fighting uh, tooth and nail for the division championship in a year where, quite honestly, I and most people in my business kind of gave you guys up for dead. You know, we thought you would be the worst team in your division. Tell me why you think this team has gelled to the point that it has this year. Well, I think that people don't really understand what it's like to be able to build a team. Otherwise they would be the general manager, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> or, or the owner or, or the head coach or whatever. But I mean, you know, the biggest thing is every year, everything looks different. And there's so many tremendous players. There's so many um, different things that coaches look for in aspects of the game that they think or believe is gonna be able to help us out. Um, you know, the coaches did a great job just with being able to draft players to be able to come in immediately to be able to help us out. But the biggest thing is I think like, you know, as we as we had a new team and our team is really young, when you get a lot of young players, you really want them to be able to buy in. And when players are able to buy in, especially the young players that come in, like you're able to kind of walk them through the scheme. You're able to kind of help them understand, like this is what we do on defense. This is how we go about it on offense. And so now because they're young, it's like, okay, well, this is a standard, you know, so this is what it is that I have to do. This is how I have to compete. This is how I have to prepare. And so um, obviously they do it in their own ways, but then when you go out there, it's like football, you know, we're out there playing as a team, you know, we're out there being able to trust one another that this person is going to do their assignment that I don't have to do too much or too little. I just have to be able to go out there and do my part. And that's when Pete always talks about being able to be your best self 
being able to find your best self and not put too much on you or do too much. And so I think that, you know, we just have a really unique team that um, has a whole bunch of talent. And it was just about being able to keep that talent into a place to where we can be able to show it and it looks good within the scheme of our team rather than us just out there playing as individuals. You know, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is just the simple fact that when you walked into the Seahawks, there was this great rivalry uh, at the time with the 49ers. And it went into a little bit of a lull, but now it's back again to being this great rivalry. What is it about your two teams that make the game so competitive, so tough, so physical, and, and quite honestly, from the outside, so fun to watch? I mean, I think, you know, it's a divisional game. We understand that, you know, in our division, a lot of these games determine the outcome of your season. It determines the outcome of whether you win your division, um, whether you, whether or not you go to the playoffs. And so we always know that when we go against the 49ers or the Rams or the Cardinals, we already know it's going to be a very, very physical game. And that's just kind of like what it's always been. I don't really know where it started, when or how it started, but I do know one thing is that you got to be able to put your helmet on and be able to embrace the physicality because there's no running away from it. And so every time we go out there, we already know what it is. They might not like us. We might not like them, whatever the case is, but we're going to go out there and we're going to just put it all on the line. Tyler Lockett, listen, thanks a lot for taking time to uh, to talk today. And also, uh, congratulations on being recognized for some of the good things you do. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. You have a good rest of the day. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. My thanks to Tyler Lockett uh, for giving me some time on Saturday. Um, and I hope you uh, uh, enjoyed his talk about what makes him feel good off the field, which is, you know, being a whole person. Um, all right, Miles, you were in SoFi Stadium for the two interesting games of this weekend, in my opinion. I wrote at length about Baker Mayfield in my column this week especially about his ridiculous final drive um, to win that game. But you were also in the house for the Sunday night game, where for the second consecutive week, Tua Tonga Valoa in the state of California really struggled. 
And, you know, it's interesting, I, I think. You know, I, I'm starting to have a few raised eyebrows about Tua. Tell me what you saw that night. And 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 I'll tell you on the backside, like what I saw and how how I think the Chargers really played Tua in that offense very well. Yeah, it's really interesting, Peter, because, you know, you see what Baker Mayfield does going 98 yards down the field. And, you know, in the press box at that game, I was seated next to Sam Farmer of the L.A. Times, who's obviously done a great job covering the league for a very long time from from there. And I turned to him and I said, man, well, 145 left and no timeouts, and 98 yards. If Baker Mayfield does this. Patrick Graham and the defensive staff of Las Vegas and the defensive players maybe should walk home because there's no way in the world somebody <laughs> yeah. who has two days barely of experience should be able to go down the field and score a touchdown. And what do we know? But they do it. And that was just some of the most fun I've had covering a football game in a long time because it was just that unexpected. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking the whole day, well, why aren't they just, if John Walford can't play and Bryce Perkins has been there for two years, why isn't he playing? And it's because Baker Mayfield yeah. can come in and do what he does. And so then, you know, you're, I'm seated in a similar seat. Then a couple days later and you watch to a tongue of Iloa and based on the way that the chargers were missing pieces of their defensive personnel, key pieces. Derwin James, who's one of the best defensive players, in my opinion, in the entire National Football League and the best defensive player that the Los Angeles Chargers have. He wasn't out there. Bryce Callahan, one of their starting corners. He wasn't out there. Sebastian Joseph Day, a key guy inside who defends the run. He wasn't there. And the Chargers are not good at defending the run anyway. And they came in that game last in the league, giving up over five yards a carry. So to me... That offensive performance from Miami was just so mind-blowingly bad that I don't really understand what was going on. It, I mean, because Miami stayed in Los Angeles, basically right down the street from me, and we're practicing at UCLA over the course of the week after losing to San Francisco in the Bay Area. And it's like, man, did you guys just enjoy Hollywood a little too much? Because Mike McDaniel was saying it was the, a game that felt the most off from what they have of their expectations for themselves yeah. in a game. And I thought that that was really, really striking in his post-game press conference. And I'll tell you, Peter, man, when Tua Tungavailoa, early on in the fourth quarter, before uh, the Chargers went on their long drive that basically sealed the game, he was 6 of 22 for 112 yards with a touchdown. And that long touchdown was, wow. of course, a 60-yarder to Tyreek Hill. And without that bomb... He was five of 21 for 52 yards. Now, I, I wow. think that there were a lot of things that the Chargers did well, but when your quarterback is playing that poorly, and I felt like, you know, watching it from on high it, as it was going on, that there were sometimes solutions to what the Chargers were presenting that Tungavaloa just for whatever reason wasn't seeing. It's hard to win when your quarterback plays that poorly in the 2022 NFL and they've got to get that fixed and fast because it's not like you're going to be in an easier situation going up to Buffalo on a Saturday night playing in probably cold and snowy conditions. The, the Miami dolphins have got to get this fixed quickly. So I hadn't planned to say anything about this, but I, you know, 
after this game and after, you know, I talked to Baker Mayfield on Friday uh, for a little while and, and his humility in that conversation was different than I had experienced with him. Now, I don't know Baker Mayfield. Okay. I, I, you know, I see him from the outside and, but, but I don't, I don't know him. So it's wrong for me to say, oh boy, what a different conversation. What would I know? I, I, I have not had many really conversations with him ever, but here was the one interesting thing. He talked about the, the longest riff he went on in our conversation was about the time before the scouting combine in 2018 when he walked on a Southwest flight, one of the only non-stops from LAX to Indianapolis yes. uh, before the combine. He was on his way to, to go to the combine. And he walked yes. on there and there was Sean McVay, the coach of the, of the Rams. And yes. now keep in mind, Sean McVay had his quarterback. So he wasn't going to yes. draft Baker Mayfield. And look, Mayfield was going to go a lot higher than, than the Rams were going to pick. So, so understand higher. that. But yeah, McVay... <laughs> said to the coach who was sitting next to him and, and uh, Mayfield did not recall who that was, but he said to the coach sitting next to him, Hey, uh, go get another seat. Mayfield's going to sit here. So <laughs> Mayfield sat next to Sean McVay and for three hours and 18 minutes or whatever the length of that flight is, that's about what it is. It was longer. Sean McVay, <laughs> Sean, Sean McVay I was, grilled. I said that because I was on it. Because I oh, was, you at the were. time I was yeah awesome. fun fact at the time I because at the time I was still working for the Rams and covering them for their media department so wow yeah do you remember, remember seeing Mayfield on the plane absolutely I remember because they wow. had the A list of the Southwest so they get on and they're two guys that maybe don't need it but are in the exit row with the uh, extra leg room. and so I remember walking by that that's that's a little curious okay that's interesting and then it became more of a national story at the time. So yeah, that's a little yeah, fun yeah. fact. Well, that's interesting. That but, <laughs> but one of the things that Mayfield said about that flight was, he said, I just couldn't believe it. I got off the plane. Here's a coach in the NFL asking me what I thought about different formations and asking me, grilling me about our offense at Oklahoma and asking about Lincoln Riley and what he likes to run and, what about this situation? What? How do you protect this and, and all that? And Mayfield got off the plane and he said, I was just in awe of what I heard. And so now fast forward to last week when uh, he gets, he asked for his release from the Panthers and he gets it and he's trying to figure out where he's going to go. And I wrote about this at length in my column that in essence, he uh, just figured that the Rams were probably going to uh, claim him. And he thought back to that conversation. And he said, I just had this feeling that, you know, with their quarterback situation and Matthew Stafford now being out, he said, I just figured that there was a very good chance they were going to claim me. And his agent said, I think there's an excellent chance his agent might have had some inside information. I don't know that. But anyway, so he went to the airport and he flew out there and the rest is history. But that it, it really impressed him 
that Sean McVay was so into kind of grilling him. But let me just say one thing about Tua that I find interesting, okay? And and it is it's sort of it's sort of an odd situation. Okay, but the week before this uh this game I was having a conversation with Dan Orlovsky of ESPN, uh, the 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 kind of genius film guy who has really done a good job at uh, at ESPN, and we were talking about how that in in his mind, because I said to him, "What will stop uh, to a Valoa right now? If you were a defensive coordinator, what would you do?" And he goes. I would pack the middle of the field. Yep. And he goes, because they really like to take advantage of the middle of the field and throw the ball deep down seams and, and yes. um, you know, do post routes and everything. He, they like, I would pack the middle of the field and I would say to, uh, you know, Mike McDaniel, beat me on out routes, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what the Chargers did. Like when I was watching the game, I said, man, they had to be listening to uh, um, and 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 again, I didn't write this. I was just you know we were just talking. I just sometimes I call Orlovsky to sort of get his opinion on things. So we were just talking, and and that's the way the game was played. And to me, you know what that is, Miles? That is uh, a quarterback who looks at another quarterback and look. There's been mountains of conversations about Tua's arm strength. And I think that's basically a defensive or a quarterback looking at a defensive staff and saying that I bet Brandon Staley said to Tua, okay, beat us throwing deep outs because we don't think you can do it. And anyway, he didn't do it. (coughs) And look, I don't think anybody should (coughs) think that Tua Tonga-Valoa now is a disaster or anything like that. That isn't the case, but... Now he's got to go and play a weather game in Buffalo on Saturday night where there's going to be some snow. It's always windy in Orchard Park late in the year. So, I mean, pressure is on Tua to show that these last two weeks are not who he is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's part of what I meant by the solutions. You know, you have to be able to throw outside the hash marks. And it seemed like there were guys who were w- running open in those places. And for whatever reason, Tonga just couldn't hit them. And so you're right. There has been plenty said about Tua's arm strength. But I think one of the things that the Dolphins have to do better is run the football. And that should be their calling card under Mike McDaniel anyway. I mean, we'll see if Jeff Wilson is going to be able to play after suffering the hip injury during that game um, against the Chargers. Yeah. But if he, whether he does or not, Raheem Mostert's a capable back, right? They have to be able to run the football against the Buffalo Bills if they're going to have a chance because it's not just going to be, you know, Tyreek and Jalen Waddle running free. And, you know, whether or not the track is slick or what have you, the, all these things can affect what is the Miami Dolphins offense. But if you run the football, that's going to make you more effective. You know, there's a, there's so much to talk about in the league, but I, I want to, you know, we were communicating before the show. I said, I want you to pick out both in my top five teams, 
and then in my top five picks for the MVP. I want you to pick out uh, one thing that you disagree with because it's easy to say, oh, yeah, I think Philadelphia is the best team. All right, so let's start. I want you to dispute my power rankings right now. Here they are. Number one, Philadelphia. Number two, Kansas City. Number three, San Francisco. Number four, Buffalo. Number five, Cincinnati. Throw your challenge flag, Miles Simmons. What do you got? Cincinnati, because I think that they're playing as well as any team in the AFC. And frankly, they just beat the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, and it's not that so I don't where think do you that put the them Chiefs now? are very good. I'm putting them at number two. I, I would. Because wow. even though, I mean, think about what they just did. I mean, the Browns have been a team that have been Joe Burrow's bugaboo. Right? They, Joe Burrow was 0-4 going against the Cleveland Browns. In going into Sunday, now he is one and four as a starting quarterback because he beat them without Hayden Hurst, without T. Higgins, who was on the field for one play with a hamstring injury. Tyler Boyd played two plays with a finger injury after suffering it on that second play. And so who does he lean on? Jamar Chase. Well, of course he does, right? But Joe Mixon comes back in that game. He's effective. Samaj P. Ryan had a touchdown. And I know the Browns are not having a very good season, but I think that kind of adaptability and the fact that they have beaten the other top team in the AFC right now in Kansas City, they have another big game, obviously, against the Buffalo Bills coming in week 17. But I don't see anybody playing right now as well as Cincinnati. So Cincinnati, to me, is right under the Philadelphia Eagles. And maybe Sam, if San Francisco were still playing Jimmy Garoppolo instead of Brock Purdy, and I know this is kind of going against some of all the things that we were talking about, I don't know what, five, 10 minutes ago, then maybe I would have the 49ers above the Bengals, but I don't. And right now, I just, I feel like the Bengals are as good as anybody in the league. That's a really interesting point, and I like it. And I think knee-jerk, I just always feel like in Mahomes we trust. And I do too. I do too. Yeah. Yes. But, but I understand what you're saying. And, you know, I think the interesting thing is now with the injury to Trey Hendrickson, who has just mm -hmm. been a monster in his two years with the Bengals, um, with the injury to him, I wonder what kind of impact that's going to have on their defense. But... I like your thought process there. Let's go to MVP. All right, so my MVP one through five, I have a new number one, Jalen Hurts, the quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles. <clears throat> number two, Mahomes. Number three, Burrow. Number four, Josh Allen. Number five, I've moved Justin Jefferson into the top five. Uh, I moved Tua Tongavaloa out of my top five. All right, give me uh, an argument on one of those, Miles Simmons. Well, I don't really disagree with any of your rankings because I would have uh, uh, Jalen Hurts number one as well. The the one that I, I guess I would flip is Josh Allen and then Justin Jefferson because I think Justin Jefferson has just elevated his team so high. And at this point, you know, it's not out of the question that he could set a new record in single season receiving yards. And Josh Allen to me, has just created so many turnover plays and or turnover worthy plays, if you want to call it that. And I, I this is a kind of nitpicking, but I guess this is what we do. Um, but I, I feel like from that perspective, it might be able to flip them. And, and 
I don't know if it's Josh Allen's really playing poorly. I can't really say that because, you know, he does so much, whether it's with his arm, whether it's with his legs, and, you know, he's going and he's basically flipping for first downs, which, frankly, if I'm Sean McDermott, I don't know if I really want to see that, even <laughs> though I like the fact that you get a first down. It's like, ah, like you are the quarterback and we need you to be able to play, but then you don't want to turn off his competitiveness and things like that. But, yeah, I, I think that Josh Allen – should be playing maybe even a little bit better than he has. And I guess that's just the high standard of play that I think Josh Allen has set for himself. Um, But to me, he's not necessarily as much of a factor in the MVP race as guys like Jalen Hurts, like Patrick Mahomes. And at this point, Joe Burrow, for a lot of the reasons I just mentioned, is also rising up as well. Jalen Hurts is such an amazing story. I'll always think back to... I don't know, maybe two months ago when I covered Jacksonville at Philadelphia and after the game got 10 or 15 minutes with Jalen Hurts. I had never met him before. And uh, the one thing that really sticks out, you know how you remember you have a conversation with somebody and you remember one thing and I think I'll remember it for years. Yes. He called his father, who was his high school football coach, called him Coach Hurts. And that says so much about who Jalen Hurts is. It says uh, that he respects the position of coach, even though maybe he might disagree with some play calls. He's always going to respect the coach. And the other thing I remember from that day in Philadelphia is the head coach, Nick Sirianni, telling me that sometimes he looks over on a Tuesday night when they're polishing up the game plan and finishing it up in the coaching offices, and he looks over and there's... Jalen Hurts sitting there getting a preview and and getting a head start on it's nine o'clock on a Tuesday night Jalen Hurts day off and he'll say what the hell are you doing here go home go home (laughs) you know and I don't know I think a lot of who Jalen Hurts is can be encapsulated in those two things okay so I think one of the most interesting in an odd way teams in the NFL right now is the New York Giants who seem to be sinking like stones and I get that and they are okay and I don't trust them at all I think they're going to get beat uh Sunday night in what shouldn't be the Sunday night game Giants at Commanders uh Dolphins at Bills should be the Sunday night game I've been on a little crusade about that but it is what it is and so but the New York Giants right now are 0-3-1 in division games. They have two division games left. One, their game <clears throat> Sunday night at Washington. Number two, the last game of the season. Uh, Giants at Philadelphia. And again, look, there's a good chance the Eagles are going to have absolutely nothing to play for. And the Giants yeah. may have everything to play for. I don't care. I don't think the Giants are going to win either of these games, but there still exists. There still exists the possibility that the New York Giants, right now at 7-5-1, could win their other two non-division games, okay, and finish 9-7-1 and sneak in as the seventh team. And can you imagine a team that goes 0-5-1 in the division, does not win a division game, making the playoffs, I realize I don't know what I want you to say other than holy crap. But when <laughs> I tell you that, what do you think? Holy crap. 
Um, yeah. yeah, it, it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think it says a lot about the fact that we didn't necessarily expect very much from Brian Dayball's Giants in his first year. And they came out right. and they played well. You know, they beat Tennessee in week one and they were very competitive. Saquon Barkley's running like he hasn't run in years. Daniel Jones was making plays. And then, you know, they play the teams that are a little bit more familiar with the personnel where I guess you could throw the personnel out the window and they haven't been as successful. So I guess that's part of it. I don't know. I, you, I don't think that there's going to lose to Philadelphia's JV team because I think that Philadelphia would throw the JV squad out there in week 18 now, because they in theory should have the number one seed wrapped up by then. I mean, unless something crazy happens in the next few weeks and they start losing and then they still would have that number one overall seed to play for. Um, but just based on the way the NFC has fallen so far, it, it stands to reason that Philadelphia won't have much to play for in that. So if the giants do and they don't, then that does create a kind of topsy-turvy uh, issue, if let's call it, for Week 18, where it, it the Giants should be able to beat the Eagles if the JV squad's out there. I I would like to at least think that they could do that, but you know, then well, Saquon's I mean, got we'll a neck see. Too. I, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, Nick Nick Sirianni is going to have a choice to make because in Week 18, yeah. knowing if in under my scenario. Yeah. Knowing that um, you've got a bye week coming up, right? If you've got guys who have some significant injuries, maybe you want to rest them. But on the other hand, the the NFL road is littered with coaches who rested key guys in the last week of the season because their oh, yeah. playoff uh, position was locked up, and then they came out two weeks later. And we're awful. So, yes. you know, yes. it's, it, it, you know, basically the Philadelphia Eagles, if he rests Jalen Hurts and, and whoever else, they would go a minimum of 20 days right. without playing a football game. And then they would open their playoffs with a divisional home game on either Saturday or Sunday of divisional weekend. I don't know what they're going to do. I know what I would do if I were a coach. I would say we're playing at least a half, yeah. you know, because I don't want to go 20 days without playing a football game at this time of year. When you play every game and then all of a sudden you just sit around for 20 days and just do physical fitness stuff and mental stuff. Anyway, we'll see. It makes but a difference. I would be surprised if he, if he rested everybody. But anyway, we'll see. Okay. I, I mean, you know, we talk about Jacksonville and Carolina both having the possibility right now. If Jacksonville wins out and beats Tennessee in the last game of the year in Jacksonville, you know, that's an interesting scenario going on because Tennessee is playing so poorly. Uh, it's not out of the realm of possibility that they could blow the AFC South. What's yeah. more interesting to me is that Carolina, who we all gave up for dead when they fired Matt Rule, after week five, Carolina can win out against a not impossible schedule, though they have to play the Lions. Carolina could win out. And if Carolina wins out, they win the NFC South. And the Carolina Panthers would be playing a home playoff game. And David Tepper, who, Miles, you know this, he wants to hire 
his version of the next Sean McVay to be his mm-hmm. coach and to find a quarterback and to uh, rework uh, the offense of this team. David Tepper would almost be forced, if that happens, to bring back Steve Wilkes as his head, as his head coach. And so I can imagine right now that David Tepper is having some conflicting thoughts in his head right now. Not only does he want a high pick to get one of these three quarterbacks, yeah. but he also wants to find his his new stud, you know, his new great offensive mind, which everybody seems to be looking for. But talk to me about the Carolina Panthers and what you see in them right now. And can they do it? Will they do it? I see competitiveness. I see Sam Darnold playing as well, probably as Sam Darnold has ever played in the league. And it's interesting because, you know, the quote I think was that David Tepper said that, well, Steve Wilkes does an incredible job, then it's this or it's that. I mean, I think Steve Wilkes is doing an incredible job. I think that it, if not yeah. for the Carolina Panthers, Steve Wilkes has shown that he should be a head coach somewhere in the National Football League. Right. I mean, we can talk about whatever happened in Arizona in 2018, and that was clearly not a good situation for a number of reasons. But now, I mean, whether it's learning from that and implementing that or being a part of a team that means probably a lot to Steve Wilkes as he was a part of the coaching staff before he's from Charlotte, he's doing a damn yep. good job with those Carolina yeah, Panthers. He is. So whether yep. or not they end up winning that division – I mean, he deserves serious consideration for that head coaching job and head coaching jobs as they appear throughout the league because, Peter, we know there's going to be a bunch of them. So the Detroit Lions, you know, not only is it amazing they're 6-7, and but, Mm -hmm. Miles, I actually think they're going to make it as the seven seed in in the NFC. I actually think they're going to make it. Um, because I think both Washington and the Giants down the stretch are going to struggle. But I found it very interesting talking to Aiden Hutchinson the other day, and I basically said to him, you said before the draft you wanted to go to Detroit. I said, other than the fact that geographically this is one of the weirdest careers in history where you played high school football in Dearborn, Michigan, went 28 miles away to Ann Arbor to play college football and then came back and went four miles away from Dearborn to the Lions practice facility. And now you play your games 12 miles away at Ford Field in downtown Detroit. You've got the weirdest football life I've ever seen. You never leave home. You can walk everywhere. And, you know, so we were joking about that. But he said, I just knew. He said, I just had a feeling about this team, this franchise, how it was being built, how it was being developed. And you know, Miles, you saw it Sunday with the touchdown pass to Jamison Williams. Lions said all along, we're not going to rush him back from this ACL. He'll play when he's ready. And it is absolutely amazing that they already have, you know, Amon Ross St. Brown, um, you know, and I, I think a good... Uh, other threat in DJ Chark, and now they get a guy who many thought was the best receiver to come out of this past draft. Mm-hmm. And they've got a reborn Jared Goff. And I, this team, I, I don't want to go too overboard, but this is one dangerous football team right now. 
is another cliche coach. You, know, you want to be playing your best football into in December and into January. And that's exactly what the Detroit lions are doing. I mean, I guess the odds makers in Vegas knew something what they were talking about, you know, and favoring them over the Minnesota Vikings. But, you know, as I was saying with Mike Florio yesterday on pro football talk, like we, maybe they should have been favored by more because look at what they did, you know? And so yeah, Jared Goff <laughs> is playing great. Yeah. You know, he's playing as yeah. well as he has since 2018. I think he said he's playing. He feels like he's playing the best football of his career. And, you know, having seen the early stages of Jared Goff, both in 2016, when it looked bad, 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 bad. And then in 17 and 18, when, you know, he was really an ascending player. This is the type of guy that he was in those two years where he's playing with a lot of confidence. And you can see how he's grown from basically every football experience that he's had now. So I, you should feel good if you're a Lions fan. You know, as bad as things kind of looked when they were, what, one and five, one and six. And then, you know, you get Sheila Ford Hamp out there and she's saying, you know, stick with us. You know, I have a lot of confidence in the process that Dan Campbell and Brad Holmes have now. I mean, they've won all but one of their games since then. That means a lot. You know, it was sort of the same kind of vibe that you got from the Raiders, I guess, before they had that horrible loss to the Rams where um, Mark Davis comes out and he gives the vote of confidence uh, to, to Ziegler and McDaniels. And, you know, maybe that's what sometimes just what the team needs, uh, the, the people up top to say, hey, you guys are doing the right stuff and we believe in it. Now just keep keep going. Keep chopping that wood because, you know, the tree is going to fall down and the tree has started to fall down in Detroit. And that's a good thing. Because it sounds like when a tree falls down, it's not, but it is in this particular case. Hey, I mean, I don't know who isn't rooting for the Lions. I, I, yeah. I don't know. I'll tell you my little uh, rooting thing over the years in the NFL. So when I was a kid, I grew up, I was a huge New York Giants fan. And when I got the job covering the Giants for Newsday in 1985, my father was so excited to say, wow, now you can cover your favorite team and, and it's, this is great and all that. And I was excited about getting the job, but I said, hey, dad, I said, those days are over. You know, I, I don't, Big I can't root for a team. You just, you can't do that when you cover football. And so he understood, but, but as the years have gone on, I don't know. I remember saying this to, I, I, I forget who I said it to, but this was maybe 2005, six, seven. This is like 15 years ago. I said, look, I don't root for any team, but part of me really wants to see the Rust Belt finally succeed and succeed ultimately. And the yeah. Rust Belt, what's that? Well, it's Buffalo, Cleveland, and Detroit. Yep. And, you know, Cleveland has had some moments, may have more moments now. Buffalo uh, looks like they're going to be contenders for a while. Uh, it, it, when you look at it, having Josh Allen and, and having that brain trust and coaching staff. Uh, and now Detroit, they always seem like the lost sheeps, you know, in the NFL pasture. And now it really looks like they might be on a, on a path to being pretty good. That plus the fact they'll have one top 10 pick uh, from the Rams and they mm -hmm. will have another uh, first round pick their own that should be probably somewhere in the teens or, or 
you know, maybe 20 or 21. But I think that's really, I root for teams not to be terrible forever. Yes. I just do. It's, you know, how'd you like to be a fan of the Detroit Lions? Really? Think about that. And, you know, for the last 20 years, a fan of the Buffalo Bills until very recently. It's just, I'm not, fair or unfair, I don't mean that. NFL teams make their own bed, then they have to lie in it. But I just think it's better for the NFL if a team that's been mostly lousy for 65 years might finally turn the corner. And that is my hope for the Detroit Lions. So I appreciate you joining me this week on the Peter King Podcast presented by Salesforce. My thanks to my friend Miles Simmons for breaking down the week with me. And my thanks to Tyler Lockett of the Seattle Seahawks. He's a good man. Thanks for joining me. And we'll see you again next week for another podcast to break down an increasingly interesting football season. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet. Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939.